Our scripture reading this morning comes from a few different places. So, if you don't mind uh, turning in your Bibles or moving your marker on your electronic uh, Bible on your phone, we begin with Genesis chapter 2, the first three verses, then we'll move to Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, and then one verse from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. All three of these passages are connected and apply to our message and theme this morning. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Then Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, which is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15 is also the conclusion of the fourth commandment, as it's stated there, except that verse 15 uh, doesn't repeat verse 11, but in fact adds an additional reason to why the Sabbath is to be celebrated. So we have this one change in how the commandment is stated. The 11th verse of Exodus 20 is subtracted out, replaced with this verse. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning to uh, understand uh, the scripture that we have before us, uh, to see the, the, the thread of a biblical truth that connects the Sabbath of creation with the Sabbath of the fourth commandment, even to understand how this would uh, speak so powerfully to the Israelites of their day, how likewise it would speak to us. We would commit... Uh, the preaching and hearing of your word to you, Almighty God. We would pray that our attention to your word will give honor to Jesus. In his name, amen. This morning we're going to continue in our series, which is all about seeing Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, we would remember what Jesus himself said to the Jewish leadership that were opposing him and challenging everything he did, especially when he would do those great and wonderful works on the Sabbath day. And Jesus said to them, you search the scriptures 
because you think in them you have eternal life. But it is these which testify about me. And remember, of course, that Jesus is speaking about the Old Testament scriptures, which the Pharisees and the scribes diligently searched again and again and again. And Jesus is saying, those very words which you have searched so diligently, you've actually missed the true message. Because the true message of the Old Testament scriptures are summed up in Christ. So, uh, what we've decided to do, I decided this with your, I guess, a consent by being here, is that we're going to be looking at the Old Testament, going through the Old Testament chronologically, in terms of, of, of being able to see where Christ is revealed to us in the Old Testament scriptures, in line with what Jesus himself said to the Pharisees, in line with what he said to his disciples when he opened up the scriptures of them and declared all the things in the law, the prophets, and the wisdom literature, the, the, the Psalms, all those things concerning him. And we're going to take this year and um, do that, uh, not nearly as extensively as Jesus did it, of course, uh, but we're going to do our best to try to understand. Because if we're going to be genuinely people of the book, you cannot and you should never call yourself, well, I'm a New Testament Christian. Because those who identify that way are separating themselves from the Old Testament. And those who separate themselves from the Old Testament separate themselves from the word of Christ and the word about Christ and the word which Christ himself is the ultimate author. And so to be faithful followers of Jesus, we need to appreciate the whole Bible, the whole story about Jesus as we find it there. So we began with creation. We've spent the first uh, three messages uh, essentially looking at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we've seen how in Isaiah, there's a great uh, commentary on that in uh, Isaiah 40, 12 through 31. But we also have seen that the first three commandments in particular are looking at Genesis 1.1 and giving an explication and an understanding of what that is. What does it mean that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? Well, unless we understand that Moses was writing to his people who had spent 400 years immersed in a pagan culture with a very different view of God and reality, a very different view of human beings, a very different view of why human beings exist, and a very different way of, of how you're supposed to live with other human beings. Unless we understand that the word of God that we find in the early chapters of Genesis and in the law of God are designed to, as it were, correct the erroneous thinking that the Israelites received during four centuries of slavery under the Egyptian religion and the Egyptian government, then we can't really appreciate everything that's being said in Genesis 1-1, and chapter 1 of Genesis, and chapter 2 and chapter 3, and what's being said in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, as they're addressed to the people of Israel. So we looked at the first three commandments. Um, in the beginning, oh, that's the beginning of the book. <laughs> the Lord our God brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and he said, you shall have no other gods before me, commandment number one. No other gods. Because you've 
been immersed in a culture that worships all sorts of gods that are false. You shall not make unto yourself any graven image because you've been in a culture that works, that has worshipped the deity through all sorts of idolatry. And you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain because you have lived in a culture where they've taken the name of their gods in a magical kind of sense and have tried to bend reality and creation and all the powers of the world to suit their own agendas. And now we come to this fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, the big point in all of this for us, reflecting upon uh, creation, reflecting upon this day, essentially is this. I mean, what is Moses conveying here? The true God is the Lord over everything, and in particular, he's the Lord over time. That is, he's the Lord who's created the cosmos. He's created this entire world with humanity, with humankind in view. And specifically, God has designed how we as human beings are supposed to conduct our lives and conduct our time. Now, I want you to see this as we get into this in terms of the correction that we're going to find in the fourth commandment and in the creation account for this reason. Last week, we looked at the third commandment, and I said, here's a good rubric for understanding the things we're talking about. Correction. Correcting the Israelites' bad understanding of the world because of paganism, correcting their understanding toward a God-centered, God's truth about the world. And I said, the second thing is connection. How does all that connect to Jesus Christ? And so we looked at that last week. And then the third part was calling. Well, what does that mean with respect to us today? We're going to follow that same rubric. Connection, or excuse me, correction, connection, and calling. But last night I realized that we don't have two hours <laughs> and we only have much less than that. So we're only going to look at the correction. The correction we find in the creation account of the Sabbath and then correspondingly the fourth commandment with respect to how the Israelites had been immersed in a pagan view of time and how God wanted to reestablish for his people the proper understanding of time, a proper understanding to how to recognize that God is the Lord of time, therefore he's the Lord particularly over their lives, their time, and how they would live. So as we get into this, you've got to ask yourself the question, do you recognize Christ as Lord over your time? Do you recognize the Lord Jesus as your Lord over all of your moments and all of your days? Do you have a biblical view of time or are you still operating upon ideas and thinking that really has a lot of paganism involved in it? So that's what we need to think about as we get into this this morning. 
in particular, uh, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 14, 15, 16, and 17 as sort of a backdrop for the seventh day and kind of a backdrop for the fourth commandment in terms of correction. But I want you to understand that in the Genesis account, in this narrative, you you see discrete patterns of time being given. Day one, day two, day three, four, five, six, and the seventh day. In the midst of that, at verse 14, you see not God speaking of discrete categories of his creation week, but he speaks to the purposes for why he's created everything in the heavens. Now, let me read this to you. And this would be the first aspect of correction we'd find standing behind the creation Sabbath and standing behind the fourth commandment. Genesis 1, beginning at verse 14. On the fourth day is when this occurs. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars also. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Here's the important thing to understand. What Moses says here stands as a statement of purpose for why God has created these celestial objects in the sky that we see from our position here on earth. And it's in direct contrast, and it's contrary to the pagan worldview. Now, in the ancient pagan world, and in the resurgence of paganism in Europe and the United States and elsewhere. Celestial objects are worshipped as gods, as forces that govern and control human activity in this world. The paganism of Egypt during the time that the Egyptians, that they ruled over the Israelites, uh, the paganism of ancient Babylon where Abraham came from, uh, the paganism of the Canaanite nations into which the Israelites were going to go, uh, all of these nations worshipped the sun and the moon and particularly the moving stars, which we call planets, which we know to be planets, all of these celestial objects were seen as powerful forces governing the lives and destinies of human beings. So the Genesis narrative overturns this and counter, counter, contradicts this. It countermands all of this kind of thinking. 
It's directly contrary to it. It's a rebuttal to it. The sun and the moon and the stars of the sky serve not as deities. They serve as clocks. They serve as clocks. They are celestial timekeepers for the sake of human beings that God is going to create on the sixth day. God's created them. God's established them for his purposes and for the purposes of human beings. They're going to mark out signs and seasons and days and years to give to God's image bearers natural timepieces that would exist to set forth the rhythms and seasons of life. Now, the one who creates them is Lord over them. These objects in the sky have no power over human beings. They have no power to determine anyone's fate. They have no power to, in any sense, forecast anyone's destiny. They only have a ruling authority to mark out the passing of time. And in that sense, they're pretty authoritative. It's hard to argue that the earth going around the sun has incorrectly given us a year, right? It's hard to argue with the fact that uh, the day and night cycle has incorrectly given us a day. Uh, They have the authority that God established in nature. It doesn't matter if you self-identify as something else. It's not going to change the way God's clocks work in nature. But they don't determine human beings and their destinies. They have no influence, no potency over the lives and how people live. You cannot even imagine, though, what a significant and powerful message this is. Unless you've ever been addicted to, captivated, enslaved into some form of paganism like astrology. I don't know that you've ever known someone who's been deeply enslaved in paganism of that sort and then was liberated through Christ. When I was a young pastor uh, leading a Bible study, the testimony of one of the ladies in the Bible study was that she had grown up a pagan. And she had grown up deeply steeped in astrology, and she had grown up deeply involved in all sorts of astrological uh, living, you know, not checking the newspaper horoscope for the day, but actually going to professional astrologers who would cast the horoscopes. And her life was a life that was determined every day by the readings that were given for that day. And so there would be days that she would supposedly anticipate auspicious favor of that day and have hope. And if it didn't pan out, she would wonder what's wrong. How did she miss it? And then there were days that forecast doom and gloom and she would live in fear because this is not a good day. This is going to be a bad day. I've got to be careful what I do so I don't make it worse. You and I cannot imagine what it's like to actually believe that the stars and the moon and the sun influence, control, and determine our lives and our ultimate destiny. But that's how the Israelites had lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. So Moses, writing about these celestial objects in the sky, 
reduces them from deities to clocks and clocks designed for their benefit to set forth the natural rhythms of life. What a great deliverance that was. But a second aspect is to look at the fourth commandment and to note another, several more aspects of correction that we find embedded in the fourth commandment. Now remember, we think of Genesis, you know, we think at the very beginning. But Moses writes the book of Genesis at the same time that he writes the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. Well, over a period of time, Numbers and then Deuteronomy. The Israelites are getting the story of Genesis at the same time that they're getting the law. So they're understanding their true origins, and then they're understanding the law in light of those true origins. They're tightly, tightly connected, even as we see within the fourth commandment. So in the fourth commandment, you would read, read it again if you want to, that it's based on the creation Sabbath. So the Sabbath there to keep holy, based on the Sabbath that God created at the very beginning. So he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath, which means rest, to the Lord your God. Jump to verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, the rest day, and made it holy. Fourth commandment embedded in the Sabbath creation. Now, how does this correct their thinking in terms of the paganism that existed? Well, so, think about the context. What were the Israelites in Egypt? They were slaves. They were owned by their Egyptian masters who were the lords and masters over their lives, but also over their time. Moses presents that picture of what life was like in the first chapter of Exodus. Let me read from verses 8 to 14. Now there arose in Egypt a new king who did not know Joseph. So he had no appreciation for the fact that these Hebrews, uh, the father of the Hebrews, so to speak, the one who had brought them into uh, Egypt had been their great deliverer. He had no. This is what happens when you forget history. <laughs> you forget the people you should honor and you enslave the people you shouldn't. So Moses writes, uh, this, this king who didn't know about Joseph said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities of Pithom and Ramses. But the more they oppressed, more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter, with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. 
So Pharaoh institutes this massive slave labor program to build cities. He puts them under harsh taskmasters so that it's hard labor, bitter service, constant work, never any time off, never any freedom from this awful way of existence. So I want you to imagine this. Imagine this as your life. What would it be like from birth to death? Your time, never your own. Your work is never your own. Everything you do is done for the benefit of someone else. Picture it. Each day you wake up to another day of bitter labor. As soon as you're old enough to work, you're enslaved to that daily grind, which would last until you are worn out and dead. Imagine, no vacations, no holidays, no weekends, just endless days of bitter work and hard service. You see, within ancient paganism, there was no such thing as a moral compass. Certainly not any kind of moral compass of the sort which God gave to Israel. There was nothing in paganism that would say, it's wrong to treat human beings this way. It's wrong to make them slaves this way. It's wrong to work people to death. So, the reason why that is the case is that in the very creation stories of paganism, whether it's the Egyptian or the Canaanitish or the Babylonian creation stories, there's no stated principle or any kind of ideal uh, given to describe human beings or their work as having any kind of inherent dignity or intrinsic value. It's not there. And that's why there were no moral standards that would in any sense limit how hard the Egyptian taskmasters would work their slaves. To the Egyptians, doing this seemed natural. It seemed wise. It seemed like the shrewd thing to do to enslave those that they thought were their enemies to this kind of life. Paganism precipitated this treatment of human beings. But look at the Sabbath commandment. Look at it from that perspective. See what it says that's so contrary and so different. There's an important corrective here to how the Israelites were to think about human beings, human life, work, and time. It's a God-centered view of things. Uh, to replace the pagan way of thinking and acting with that which truly honors who God is and honors who human beings are as his image bearers. Several correctives. We find correctives back in the Sabbath of creation. We can say this about the Sabbath of creation. In that creation of a Sabbath day, God established a new clock. He established the week. I'm going to say more about this in the next two messages. But do you recognize that the seven-day week has a heritage so ancient 
that modern scholars who dismiss the Bible can't find its origin any place else. The seven days has no natural analog in nature. It's not like a month that has the moon. It's not like a year, which is in reference to the sun, or a day that's in reference to the sun, or the seasons, which were in reference to the movement of the stars and so forth. No. There is no answer in human history outside of Scripture for why cultures all over the world follow this pattern of repeating every seven days, the seven-day week. Doesn't exist. But it's also the case that God is saying to the Israelites, I worked six days and rested. If I, God, work, if you are my image bearers, then it's true that work has dignity. I, God, do nothing undignified. If I work, if you work, it is dignified. It is a good thing. Is it a right thing? It's not evil. But notice God didn't work unceasingly. And that's the second correction we see in the creation Sabbath. God placed limits upon his work. He only worked six days and then he rested. Further, he only worked a certain amount each day. Just that which was sufficient and necessary for the very next day. You don't find God working overtime. Uh, you, you find God doing everything necessary for that day, and then he called it a day. Literally. I was hoping that would get a little more... <laughs> I wrote it that way and then realized what I'd written and then I started laughing. (laughs) God worked no overtime in setting forth the ideal approach and the ideal plan for the week of work. A third corrective. God then finishes the work week with a day of rest. He blesses it, makes it holy, sets it apart. Now, most commentators have pointed out the obvious fact. Was God tired at the end of six days? No. Did God have any intrinsic need to rest? Was there something? No. So, obviously, what God is doing here sets an example for how human beings are to conduct the rhythms of their life and to respect the fact that labors to be for six days and then labors to cease. There's the day of rest. Now, think about how important that was for the Israelites who had never had a day of rest for the hundreds of years that they had been slaves in Egypt. Then going to the fourth commandment, several further correctives we find there. The first, we might say this way, The work week for human beings must be like God's work week. Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. 
but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. So the pattern of God's creation work is then embedded in the fourth commandment. God works six days, only six days, rests upon the seventh, does no work upon that day. So the Israelites are told, you are to adopt this plan. A pattern of work, a pattern of rest. Keep the day holy. Keep it like God kept it, holy. And keep it holy unto God. So in that week of work, they are to work days, not day and night. Right? Like God, set proper limits to your work. They're not to allow their work to exceed six days. Image bearers of God, reflect his image, reflect his, like, his likeness. Let your pattern of work, as it were, reflect the God who created you and who created the working week. Another correction. In being freed from the condition of slavery, you must be freed from the mentality of slavery. So the commandment says, On it you shall not do any work, you, or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who's within your gates. Now that's a profound correction. Uh, in a couple of ways. First of all, it's saying to the Israelites, life is not all about work. Do you live to work or do you work to live? They lived to work as slaves, as those freed by God's sovereign work. They worked in order to live. But they didn't need to work every day. Six days of work is sufficient for seven days of living. What a powerful message that was to those who had had a slave mentality. But further, since you're not supposed to do this, you can't then impose something differently upon your children or the people who work for you or even your farm animals. But I'd like to know this for those who have chickens. Can you get those chickens to stop laying on the Lord's Day? That's, that's probably pretty hard, isn't it? <laughs> the point is, is that life is not all about work. As created beings and redeemed and designed to live the way God wants us to live, we're not supposed to mimic slavery. And those who do nothing but work have made themselves slaves to that work. But further, this has to apply to every human being. Family members, servants, those who are employed by you, even farm animals who work for you, they must also have their rest. There must be time off from one's livelihood. There must be rest and there must be recuperation. There are other matters besides work in life. There must be time for God and worship.
And then sort of a final correction here. God is the true Lord over time. And how we spend our work week is to be aimed toward that day, the Sabbath day, the day of rest. So the commandment is saying to the people of God, adopt God's creation week as your pattern and then aim it toward the day that God has set apart and made it holy unto him. God is ultimately the Lord of all time and the Lord of the Sabbath who's given the Sabbath that we might recuperate and rest in his presence and fellowship with him so that the aim of our lives and the aim of our time is rightly focused on God. And think about what this meant for the Jews. Think about the incredible blessing the fourth commandment was for them as it was presented to them in the law. You're not slaves any longer. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You no longer are slaves. You no longer have to work like slaves. There's a set amount of work to be done and no more. And every seventh day, you get the privilege of stopping this labor, no matter how difficult it is, and to rest and to focus upon the God who gives you life. I think that's a message that ought not to be lost upon us in a post-Christian and growing pagan culture where people live increasingly to work. Now, there's grace in this commandment, and Moses understood the grace in that commandment by how he restates it at the end of the 40 years in the wilderness in the book of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, he replaces verse 11, as we've said with verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You're no longer a slave. Keep this day like someone who's been freed from slavery. So redemption motivates the keeping of this day, not just creation, but Redemption motivates the keeping of this day. Now, finish with this. Can't finish without drawing at least a connection to Christ in all of this. In Mark 2:28, in the midst of a Sabbath controversy with the Pharisees, Jesus says this: "The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath." Whoa. The Creator is the Lord of the Sabbath. Christ is calling himself the Creator. He is the Lord over the Sabbath. The Sabbath day, the day of rest, is his day. But he came not just to give the Jews a proper understanding, the right understanding, against the legalism of the Pharisees, but he came to expand the full sense of what this Sabbath rest is ultimately all about. So Jesus declared to all those who would hear, come to me, listen to the words, 
They echo Exodus 1. They echo the slavery in Egypt. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus had said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. The heaviest labor, the heaviest burden, is that of living as a slave to sin. And imagine that slavery. Imagine being enslaved to sin from birth to death. You're owned by your sin. Your time is not your own. Your work is not your own. It's given over to sin. All goes for the destruction that sin brings about. Each day that a person who is enslaved to sin wakes up is another day of the bitterness and hardness of life with sin as the master. As soon as someone is old enough to begin to act and live as a slave to sin, there's a daily grind of being controlled by that which you can't control yourself, the very power and nature of sin, never ceasing, wearing you out until the day you die with all of the consequences that follow on the day of judgment. Sin gives no vacation. Sin gives no holidays. Sin gives you no time off on weekends. Endless days of the bitterness and hard labor of sin as the master, to which Jesus says, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's all for us in Christ. The rest our souls need. Let's pray. Lord God, remind us that you have created us and dignified us and all that you've done for us in Christ. Uh, Teach us the truths that would correct the way we think and live. Connect us deeply to your Son. And encourage us in our calling to redeem the time that we live for the glory of our Savior. In his name, amen.